Coming up on today's episode of the Real Lives Podcast. What had actually happened was I fractured the C5 vertebrae right down the middle and then I'd ruptured two discs. So I think it was C4, 5, 5, 6. It's tough and, it, and it's understanding the principles of, of how things work because it's a bit more scientific than just the sled goes down and then you don't do anything. So uh, you need runners as well. To buy a set of runners could be 5 to 10 grand. Sleds sort of to buy is 40 to 60 grand. And I think the military's been, and they've built up equipment, uh, support and that sort of stuff. It's almost essential. Unless you've got the money in the world or UK sport are fully funded programs, uh, there's, there's no way in really. Just before we get into today's episode, please remember to like, subscribe, share the podcast with anyone who may be interested. I appreciate all the support that it gets, but without the support, the podcast will not grow. I can't get more and more guests on week on week. So please, if you can, just do any which one of those things. I'd really appreciate it. So enjoy this episode with RAF engineer and also bobsled athlete, John Stanbridge. John, welcome on to the podcast. Um... This one's a pretty cool one for me because I've obviously had two other bobsledders on, but I've been looking to get someone on who's been in the armed forces as well. So I think by hitting the nail on the head of both athlete and, you know, someone who's in the armed forces is great. So let's start off with who you are and what you do. Okay. Yeah, I'm uh, John Stanbridge. I'm an aircraft engineer in the Royal Air Force. I've been uh, involved in the military for just over, coming up to 15 years now. Uh, I'm also. a GB bobsay pilot, uh, something that I discovered probably about 10 years ago through the military. Uh, I've been racing internationally across uh, Europe uh, and, and North America to, to, to compete um, with the, the hope of pushing towards the, the next set of Olympics in 2026. So that's the overall goal. So. What? Why the RAF? Out of all jobs in the world, why did you want to join the RAF? Um, so when I was younger, like uh, I got involved in what was like the air cadets. Uh, probably wouldn't tell people this, but <laughs> they call it like space cadets or whatever. But it was, it was more. It was just. I did it, it gave, as well, mate. I did it as well. Yeah, it gave me a, a, a bit of discipline and information and a bit of a, a hook to to be involved in that sort of environment. Um, I, my my parents when I was younger, my stepdad, my mum would take take us to like Hendon Air Museum and a few places. That, and that sort of created this spark. So um, I originally applied to be a pilot when I was sort of 18. Uh, my eyesight in one eye is ever so slightly off, like 0.05. I can't wear glasses for it because it's not, um, but it's not 2020. Um, applied to be a crewman, which is uh, the guy in the back seat uh, of, say, a Chinook or um, in a, an airload master in, in a big uh, transport jet. Um, played for all the application, went through the process. Um, but I didn't pass the uh, aptitude test for crewman, but passed for the officer side, so the navigator officer. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't have my A-levels at the time, and I just wanted to get involved. I'd, I'd been done with A-levels there, like the last six months and, and that. So uh, I ended up choosing the aircraft avionics, uh, and it was just a, a bit of structure at the time. I'd, I'd never been abroad, uh, like couldn't drive, so within the first 18 months, I'd, I've been to 10, 11 different countries, uh, a tour of Afghanistan in, in that sort of time as well. And it, it really, the appeal of being able to travel, see the world, get paid uh, to do that was, was just something that really, really like drew, drew me in. So, Yeah, the, 
when I was a kid, because I, like I said, I did air cadets. My only problem was I was terrible with the discipline of it. I, <laughs> I was the lad who was shouting out and like, no, I'm not doing that. No, I'm not doing this. And I was always sort of adamant if I didn't go into what I'm doing now, I would have gone into probably the army or the RAF or some role like that, purely because of the same reason of the fact that, you know, you get to travel you get trades, you get like the, the ability to learn new skills and also see new things is probably better than that of most jobs in the world. Um, so as like an 18 year old kid who like, as you've said there, you know, you've, you've seen 10, 11 countries in the first like few months and stuff. How, how was that for you? Obviously, you know, cause in the UK, sometimes a lot of people don't travel that much. And then all of a sudden you go in everywhere, see new cultures, new places. How is it? Yeah, it was it was amazing to 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 go to the places. So I spent like a month in Australia, uh, traveling uh, myself with, with a friend when I got back from Afghanistan. Like my first Christmas away uh, with work, I was I was nineteen and I, I spent it out in Afghanistan supporting the Chinook helicopters. Uh, so it was a bit uh, daunting for my parents and family to see me in, in an environment that you know. Uh, to do with sort of war and, and the conflict and that sort of stuff. But for me personally, I was just loving the experience. Um, that opportunity to, to get out there. I, I ended up on the adventure training in Costa Rica. So I spent two weeks out in Costa Rica, surfing, climbing mountains, like Mount Chiripos, 13,000 feet mountain. We did a, a, an adventure training there. Uh, I learned to snowboard. I've been parachuting every sort of opportunity uh, to to push the boundary and feel that thrill or, or sort of adrenaline was something that I pursued and, and that that sort of stopped me through through time really always gives someone an opportunity to have a go or or try it because you'll never know you'll never know what you enjoy in, in life so yeah it, it was de definitely the experience that sort of molded me to move forward with, with stuff so what so a lot of people when they go into the forces they leave after that sort of four-year period where is it the four years where you then you can get the pension and obviously from then on it's kind of if you stay in you get the larger pensions and the larger benefits and what have you so why like I, you're reaching 15 years now so how come you stayed in um within the raf uh so i think i think we were talking about is the army side of stuff as a infantry you get an initial sort of four-year contract or the four-year point is when you can first apply to leave uh for mm -hmm. us in, in the air force we initially get signed on for nine years uh, and then that got wow. up to 12 years uh, and when i got promoted to to corporal uh, back in 2017 you got given an offer for 20 to 22 years depending on your age so that's when you're once you complete those 20, 22 years, that's when you get your, your full pension. You can start drawing it when you leave and you'll get that right up to you. So you, you pass away, really. Um, for me, I've always reviewed the situation. So every couple of years, I'll look at the look at what my life is like now. Am I enjoying it? Is there opportunities outside? Well, uh, during so obviously your stint, you did, years, was it three tours of Afghanistan? Maybe looking to leave. Uh, yeah, uh, so over the last what, sort of three, obviously we years, see how Afghanistan is portrayed in the media, and then the, I've seen a lot recently of uh, the likes of Iran, for example. Uh, now we see, we see, we hear all of different things about people getting, you know, stoned to death or shot because they believe something that the the government's ideology is it doesn't align with it. But then you see people like so. I have a friend who's currently traveling on his moped from uh, the UK to Australia, and he's just recently been in Iran. 
and everyone there is just incredibly friendly. So what was it like in Afghanistan for you, obviously behind the scenes of what the media are portraying? Yeah, for me, I, I worked out on the main operating bases, so we didn't leave the confines of, of the camp unless it was in a, a, a certain situation. So uh, repairing and maintaining the Chinook fleet, uh, I, I'd worked 12-hour shifts for those three, four months straight each time I was out. Um, and our main job there was to sort of support the Mert. But dealing with the, the locals there that are on camp, providing us food or serving us, Generally, they're, yeah, they're quite quite friendly. Uh, you, there was like a marketplace you could go to where uh, the locals would come in and try to sell you goods. You know, whether it's uh, carpets, watches, uh, fake watches that you you get your best Breitlings there. You know, uh, and that <laughs> sort of stuff. But uh, it was um, yeah, dealing with the people there, you, you understand that uh, there's always possible threats and that sort of stuff. But I'm, my main focus was making sure the aircraft was was serviceable, uh, was working and I'm doing my job correctly as part of a, a bigger a bigger task. So you're you're only sort of one one pin in the big thread of of everything. So how would a typical how long would a typical tour be of Afghanistan or any tour, for example? Uh yeah, for me on the engineering side uh, and the Air Force it was sort of three to four months. Uh the infantry side of stuff you're you're looking at six months plus uh, potentially so but those three, four months would roll around in another eight months' time. So within a 12-month period or 14-month period, you could be away for those that six-month, seven-month at a time overall. So, um, yeah, it's it's a long time to be away from home and holding relationships and that sort of stuff is always a struggle. You know, you're given sort of 30 minutes of phone calls a week to, to speak to people back home. Uh, and there's, the internet is doesn't really exist there. You know, you, yeah, it was back. If you remember, ever remember what dial-up? It, it might be before your time, yeah. Ethan. But no, uh, that, I was that a sort kid of speed with dial-up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, so. yeah, it's crazy because thirty minutes a week. Like I live out in Australia, and all my family live back in the UK. You can easily spend two hours on the phone to someone when you you know, and you speak to them once a week. So the. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever sort of, you know, like you, when you did your first tour, there's obviously probably probably a bit of excitement, a bit of nerves about going to this kind of place. But once you've done it and seen it, were you then kind of not, not wanting to go, but were you almost like, oh, I could do without this? Um, there, there is an aspect to that because it, it's more about the people you leave behind that struggle more than yourself. Because I'm in that environment um, and in that environment, my my main job is twelve hours to go to work. I'll sleep for eight eight to nine hours, then I might get to the gym or, or something, and then I'm back at work again, and that just keeps rolling over. So your distractions and your time while you're there is probably some of the most enjoyable time I had, like w- w- with the military working, because there's no distractions. The group of people that you're with, you create such a team bond with that um, 
you know you, you're in it for each other and stuff so for for me i really enjoyed being away and doing those things and you feel that that usefulness that purpose that you you're creating uh and making a difference um because i worked with as part of the second and third sort of tour uh in support of the mert team which is like the medical evacuation team so we'd get a uh, alarm go off that would tell us uh someone's in danger out in the field the chinooks would then have to fly out to recover them uh, to get them back to the hospital uh we'd i'd then hear the alarm i'd run 150 200 meters to the cab get it prepped for the air crew the doctors everything to run on board and then we'd get the jab, the cab up in the air and if we did that within four minutes we had like a 50 percent increase in survival rate so that's the importance of what we were doing day in day out to make sure and because i was one of the quicker guys i'd always be running the main tools out to, to get stuff done so that sort of uh self-worth that you, you're part of a bigger scheme really really drove you to to enjoy being there i'm fascinated by the psychology of high performance and situations like that are to me the definition of high performance like it's a life could be a life or death matter and your job is literally to prepare everything so that the person whoever it is can survive or has the best chances of survival so for you as someone who's been there and done it what what sort of goes through your brain from the moment the siren goes off to the moment the the chinook or the helicopter is taken off uh yeah it's it's just first of all you're running as quick as you can but uh the thought is just to get do your job as best as you can so that the next person can do their job right uh we'll get the cab turning and burning running that distance and uh it, it has an effect we've had issues where maybe the cab doesn't work or there's a problem with it and then i a 21 year old at the time 22 year old i have to go to the pilot here to tell me a fault there's an issue with it and then i have to think on my feet within that four minute window to try and fix the fix the fault so using the experience the education the, the training we've got that just kicks in and becomes almost automatic so you know the systems that you're working on and the more you learn the more you do the more experience you can to make those decisions and make the right decision um if we can't get that cab and there's a fault that affects the flight systems and something it then falls to the, the crew to accept that so then they mitigate that risk and take that that on board but you've got to give them the information they need to, to, to make that decision also so if that happens then we have to prepare we always have a backup spare so then we'll load everything from in, in that main cab that's due to go into the spare and obviously that four minute window is gone now so you, there's, there's always that effect but in life there's stuff that's always out of your control and i think as long as you can do your best to make sure your job's done right it it, it can really make a difference i think so you mentioned there obviously you you kind of you training that you've been through just sort of kicks in and you go into sort of autopilot with it the initial training when you go into the RAF, specifically for your role, how long is that process? Uh, so it's it's recently changed, but uh, when I went through, uh, we'd have your initial basic training, which everyone does, which is about a 10-week course. Uh, we'd then go to Cosford, where I've just moved to work as a, an instructor, uh, as a new job and a new role. But you'd spend six months there learning your basic flight line maintenance. Uh, so that'd be servicing uh, the aircraft. Similar to like your your car, you take it in for a service each year to do the oil changes and your tire checks, your point checks that everything does. So you do that, but there's a before after flight maintenance sort of uh, package you learn. And then I spent 18 months on a squadron 
on Chinook, and that's when I first did my first tour. Uh, and then I came back for another sort of year uh, to 13 months to learn the more in-depth systems. So you're going to the avionics, the electrical systems, the flight control, radar, com communications, all that information you learn over a general package. And then when you get to your next squadron after you post in, uh, so we're talking about three years at, at this point, you'll then do a, MV, uh, a Q course, which is a more in-depth knowledge course of six to three months on that specific aircraft. So whether it's a Chinook or uh, a Typhoon, uh, a Tornado Jet or uh, the big boys, you'll, you'll learn about speci specifically. So the time is, you know, you're talking three, three and a half years until you're, uh, say, qualified with an MVQ or four years is the qualification you get out of it. So it, the, the time against other sort of trades within the Air Force and military, uh, we're one of the more in-depth trades that, that you have to go through and sort of the, the front end of that. If you want aircraft to fly, you need people with the skill to, to maintain it. So, What made you pick that specific role as an engineer and not go for, obviously you said why you didn't go for yeah. the uh, pilot's role, but why not anything else other than that specific engineer's job? So for me, uh, I always look at things quite logically, uh, how my brain works and like I've always enjoyed sort of taking bits apart put them together and then figuring out why I, I can look at sort of shapes things differently and see uh, numbers that sort of stuff I'm quite good with uh, like general arithmetic but it was just the the excitement as a pathway so uh, the crewman I didn't pass for but it's something you can apply for later uh, so in my mind I thought well if I do the engineering on the aircraft I'm gonna have a better understanding if if I do go that path towards the crewman later on in life uh subsequently i found out the the level of skill that the crewman had isn't as they do the, a certain role but the the job and experiences that they've got outside of life uh it's a bit more difficult to get a job but if you're an aircraft engineer especially in electrical avionics the roles that you can have outside can vast from i know guys that work on the formula one Renault team uh, to nuclear wind rail sector um yeah, engineering is such a vast, uh, vast like sector that you can get a job and and get paid well for it outside. So it, there's always forward planning in my mind and uh, looking for towards the future. So, would you ever go into any of those other roles? Leave the RAF and go into say, um, you know, the rail jobs or even like like car racing that kind of thing. Oh, if I could get a, a Formula One job uh, when I leave, that'd be that'd be amazing, you know, to to be involved in such a a, a bigger thing and be part of a, a cog in a wheel to 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 succeed for something else is, yeah, that that's what I've been trying to pursue uh, with work and also the bobsleigh side of stuff as well. So, yeah, that that'd be a, a dream really. So, um, and rail sector is. For me, it's about doing what you need at the right time and, and, and looking ahead. And those jobs always pay well. Um, the military side of stuff, we're not paid particularly well. We've paid okay, uh, but it's really hard for the military to compete with those in the public sector for, for, for jobs. So you always find people do leave and you, you never find someone without a job that's left the military in, in sort of my, my trade. So, yeah, it's definitely got an appeal for, for the future when it comes around to it. So. Yeah, working in the Formula One would be an absolute dream, wouldn't it? Like, yeah, yeah you're going to all these racetracks around the world, like at Monaco this weekend. And, you know, I went to the Australian Grand Prix back in, was it 
end of March, yeah, end of March. And, you know, seeing how they work. Just the pick boots, it? yeah. It's ridiculous how they work. But, yeah, so for yourself, obviously, you're a high-performance athlete as well. Um, so where did this this opportunity to try bobsled come from? Because, like I've said to Elliot and I've said to uh, Manio, it's not a sport that you get into as a kid. It's not a sport that as a kid you no, would sit and go, you know, this is my dream. You, Everyone goes, I want to be a footballer, rugby player, what have you. It's never a bobsled athlete. So where did that come around for you? Uh, so it was sort of a a flyer popped up almost at work at, or like a, a routine weekly order popped up. And it, this was back where you didn't have pictures. It was all like text and the internet wasn't really a big thing at the time. So it was all on paper. So give bobsled a try. Uh, for for the RAF, so uh, I applied, got in contact, sent the email, uh, and I ended up down at Bath University, which is the home for sport for GB Bobsey, and there's a push track facility that we use there, which is the only one in the, in the country. So um, at the time, I was just out of training, so uh, I was probably weighed just over seventy kilos. Uh, at the time, I, I went to it. Uh, I wasn't successful in making the selection for the RAF squad. Uh, so uh, I went away for a couple of years after a, a tour of Afghan or, or two uh, I'd, I'd worked hard to improve my strength my, my weight I was probably up to sort of 78 80 kilos at the time and I was successful in applying again for it um, and managed to get into the uh, squad for a novice camp invitation so that was a week away out in Austria uh, doing bobsleigh without a clue never no one's ever done it before there you're, you're in the same boat as everyone else and how it works is you you go with the coach walk the track uh which takes probably about half an hour 45 minutes uh and then within two hours later you're ha- sort of halfway down the diamond start when a lady start that we spoke about earlier they just push you off <laughs> so you, you main your first experience is and you're either in the front or the back and then they switch you around so now i got quite fortunate that the guy in the back didn't want to go in the front so i got more time over the runs uh, over the week to to experience driving um yeah so it's almost you're fighting for survival you're not completely sure what you're doing but you're trying to listen to what they've told you to and correct correct those mistakes so uh, i got through the whole week out of 15 runs without crashing so i didn't do too bad there was a few guys there that struggled i did get put in the back with some air commodore having the same experience as us and he, he stiffed me in on the first one so <laughs> you, you you're putting that situation straight away of knowing do i enjoy this can i feel the thrill and when you crash is it something i want to do again and uh, and that was a draw really i, I really enjoyed it um unfortunately they uh, offered me to go to sort of uh the rf championships which is like a mini competition later that year but i was going away with with work to to afghan so um it was then another sort of it was probably about four or five years after that uh at the time like the relationship i was in probably didn't allow for me to have the the time that i to pursue that but i kept working on my strength my, my training and that sort of stuff and it was in 2017 actually that it really kicked off for me uh where i retested for the air force i was up to 90 uh, just over 90k 93k uh then so i'd gone from 70k to to 90k in a good sort of seven eight years so my weight my power everything started to come through um and uh i tried for the air force got a week away uh 
driving and then went to the inter services represented at the inter services as a brakeman because uh, that's a natural sort of transition you find in Bob say you usually start as a brakeman then move to the front seat because it's best to have the best athletes in the front seat as well as the back because uh, it's easier to teach a brakeman how to drive than it is uh, someone that could drive to become more athletic or you're always at a ceiling boundary with, with how you can perform so uh, had that opportunity to go away and into services we, we won overall uh, and then it went from there the year after i was in the front seat learning to drive at, at new tracks in koenigsee eagles uh, rep represented as the inter services driver uh, for the next couple of years and then i got a, i actually got an opportunity to uh, support the new zealand bobsay team as sort of a loan uh, to try and get more experience and learn learn about the sport so it was actually andy williams in new zealand who was trying to push the new zealand new zealand um, bobsay federation forward uh, yeah. and he had a few couple of guys but they didn't have much experience working on the sleds maintenance and and sort of the general setup so i spent a season in north america and in europe supporting them in 2019 and then That's after crazy. that um yeah yeah it's sort of a loan uh, the way that IBSF works is you can represent another nation without a, without a, a passport. You just need a general tie to them. Oh, really? Uh, but when it comes to Olympic level, you have to have obviously be from that nation uh, yeah. and stuff. So uh, there's been a period before where Joel Fearn, a GB athlete, had gone over to the Swiss and got uh, paid to go and train with the Swiss for a year to help support their program uh, and stuff. So, yeah, it's... Uh, it's a unique unique opportunity to, to do something like that and, and experience more of the sport and then by going away you meet people within the network uh, so i met uh, a couple of the australians out there uh, that i'm still friends with that support and the jamaican team i'm, I'm a good friend with uh, sham wayne who's also air force so uh, you meet these people and it, it builds up that network for support for the future yeah uh, so it was 2020 uh yeah, sorry. No, you... Go on. Uh, yeah, I was just going to ask. So for so you said there that you know there's the progression from the brakeman to the pilot. What are the key performance indicators that sort of differentiate someone who from being a good brakeman and then being a good pilot? So a good brakeman uh, in the sport, you've got uh, a pilot and the brakeman. Uh, they're the two main sort of roles in a two man in a four man. You've got three brakemen, one pilot. So the Brakeman's job is to have that explosive start, uh, be strong, quick, powerful, uh, just as the pilot needs to be, but over a longer distance. So a pilot might, uh, the, the brakeman will push the head for up to maybe 40, 40 metres, the 55 is sort of the first clock, I believe. Um, and then the pilot's only pushing to maybe 30 metres and then jumping in the sled. So the main difference is having the, the mental toughness and the mental agility in it and the strength uh, to calm yourself after pushing the sled. Uh, pilot then jumps in and he's got another minute worth of track to negotiate safely or find those fast lines. Uh, when you're traveling at speeds of 80 miles an hour, 80 miles an hour, you're making split second decisions to, and those decisions could either be right or wrong. Uh, and the, the toughest thing is to be able to do that and be in control of the sled and be uh, take away that pressure on yourself. Because if you're trying to perform under immense pressure, that can have a massive effect on your capability. Ability you, you hear about athletes, you know, possibly choking or 
all that sort of stuff. That, that's what you're trying to avoid. So uh, the brake moves rob is a bit more simple. Just jump in, hold on, and stop the sun at the end. Hold on for dear life while the, you put all your trust in the guy in front. So <laughs> yeah, but it's yeah, the, the, it's such an interesting sport to to watch because like so from an outsider's point of view it's like when you know you're a kid and you watch the f1 it's kind of just cars driving around the track and you don't really understand the point of it but when you actually get into detail and like i've spoken to obviously a few athletes now and you begin to hear the depths of what goes into being a good bobsled athlete it's incredible because you know it's almost like being in an f1 car with the g's that are going through your your spine your neck the you know the ability to hold off on braking until the very very last second the you know sprinting until the very last second before jumping in all these different things but for yourself when you were first starting out in the sport what was the most difficult thing for you to get used to um i think it is it's just the there's a, the pressure aspect for for driving uh, is tough and and it's understanding the principles of of how things work because uh, it's a bit more scientific than just the sled goes down and then you don't do anything so uh, what you find is you're always trying to make the the right steer at the right time and on the speed that you're going at uh, you make a mistake and it's understanding the pressure of the sled so if I'm steering a sled on a left hand corner. Uh, it, it could be like a curve like this. That's that's the line that we'll see. Um, what will happen with the sled, it will rise because the pressure in the sled wants to go up and then it will fall and then it will rise again because the pressure cuts in. So we're trying to put a steer at the start of this corner here to make sure it smooths out and you push, you force the pressure further along in that middle point so it's higher there and then it will fall away. So the principle is just to understand that, that when I do something at this point, there's going to be an effect at the end uh, and knowing that is when it makes it easier to avoid crashing if you do make a mistake or, or the line isn't quite right and making those small adjustments uh, and you only get that over time uh, that's been the hard, hardest thing and you're always learning because you go to a different track and the next track's different than the one before uh, the sled you're in might be ever so slightly different the runners you're in the track conditions like the temperature the humidity can affect the speed of the track um, how the ice is cut on that day it could be cut uh, a bit sharper on an entrance or it could be a bit flatter which means you try to go to the corner a bit early it's going to push you away you're going to be later on and then you need to do more so yeah there's a lot more in-depth principles and understanding that i've learned over time that that's always only going to make me better and uh, to, to perform yeah so when so you said when you started out sort of for the tryouts for the, the bobsled team you were about 70 kilo and obviously being that it's a sport that utilizes gravity heavily obviously being heavy is going to yeah. make a big difference and during that like during that you were saying you focused heavily on building your strength but obviously to be very very good at sprinting there's much more to it than that so when during this period of transition into trying to become a bobsled athlete did you switch up your training from probably like you know really heavy strength work all the time to then adding in the speed work the power work you know all these different kinds of metrics which you probably weren't before yeah so uh it was all sort of like general training to increase my weight over over time uh but it was actually in 20 2018 after i've been in the military team for for a year that i, I became really serious about it 
uh, and uh, after New Zealand experience, I got in touch with Ben Simons. He's a three-time Olympic athlete for GB. Um, he's also one of the guys that holds uh, a gold medal uh, for, for Whistler, I think. Um, so he's part of Semtech Systems as his company and his experience of training and coaching. Uh, I've been with, with him for nearly three, three four years now. Uh, and the ad- adaptations and the understanding that he's got about training really has really helped me within the first sort of six months of training with him my uh, zero to 30 meter time dropped by a tenth so to have such a big margin over that period was really good so i've stuck with that and through that time my strength has come through my power my speed uh, and, and we cater it with the periodization of everything and i'm just following i'm blindly following what he's telling me to do because i know it's correct i know no uh, but it's good to research and I'm slowly getting more understanding what, what we're doing at what time and, uh, and that sort of stuff. But, um, yeah, the, the speed aspect was something that probably not coming from a sprinting background or not had to learn quite quickly. The drills are very specific and it's only by rep- repetition that you can get better at those. Uh, and I think that sort of stuff has really helped me, helped me progress. Um, and you try and build that, uh, your CNS, your your body to remember those movement patterns, uh, and those movement patterns are important for anything. Although in a sled you're pushing pushing weight, uh, the the sprinting aspect also plays plays such a massive part to to be able to apply that power because you need to be pushing like five. I think I read somewhere that Usain Bolt, as he was sprinting down the track at his hundred meters, in one individual leg he's putting down five times his body weight in force. Uh, so you've got to think that single leg loading that we do as part of a training is so impressive when you've got to add weight to that as well. Yeah. Uh, so you're always trying to move forward, forward with that. I think uh, my body composition and the way I'm shaped, I'm I'm like 60% torso and, and 40% legs, which is isn't ideal. But for for the front, I've got to run a little bit less, uh, and the power that I have overcomes that initial initial inertia better than say maybe a sprinter might with with slightly longer legs and that sort of stuff so yeah it's, it's understanding what what training i need and, and we're still early on um for, for me it's not like i've been training 15 years full time and you, you hit your peak and then you you sort of there so i think there's still still more for me to go uh when, when you've only been training like at that level for for four four or five years there's still 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 a lot of progression to go so that, that, that's the plan forward i think the whole periodization side of things in terms of training is it's like an art form to get right like when you know when you start going to the gym and you start lifting weights because you, you sort of think oh it's as easy as you just lift more or you do more sets but to then periodize a program and it's you can't you can't perfectly periodize anything it's almost impossible <laughs> to but you know to get it near correct is like an absolute like i applaud anyone who can get that down to a T because yeah, it's, it's an absolute art form to be able to do, you know, to understand when it's when to add different characteristics of training. So when to add your speed work, when to add the power work, when to maybe add the endurance work and all that side of thing. Because so I'm from an SNC background. So you know, work I've worked in professional rugby, worked in semi pro football. Yeah. And to get it right, so, so hard. And you know, like you said, the guy you work with has obviously got it pretty much down to a T, 
which you know commend anyone who can do that yeah it's tough because we're getting tested constantly throughout the summer uh, and then we, we've got a peak we need to be ready for august which is our final testing and then when you get on season you need to be almost sustaining a peak level each week because at each after week after week you're at the next race you're in the next competition and trying to sustain that there is no stopping Bob say really I, I think for training because when you're on season three pushes in a sled could take a lot and then after that you're expected to train as well with, with the time it can be difficult um, but yeah it's in the off season we I'll probably take a couple of weeks before I start training at the end of end of the season to start again so uh, there is no break for it so it's it's quite relentless at times yeah the you, you know you train on an indoor track in uh, bath university isn't it how hard uh, is it to carry over onto the ice or well not an indoor track so uh, maybe, you know like yeah, on the, push track, yeah, yeah. yeah. how, track, how hard yeah. is it to carry over onto the ice from that so the the replication is is pretty close uh to the same uh, but the difference we find is is for those athletes that might be more powerful, uh, as soon as it hits on the ice and, and maybe their speed isn't as high, they they can struggle a little bit with with the speed aspect because the friction on the ice is so much lower, uh, the sled starts moving quicker, uh, and you can find that an athlete might be good at the push track, but not as good as once they've been on ice in a pairs push. Uh, because when you're pushing with two people, that's going to move quicker too. So uh, it's a good replication. It's a good training tool, but it's good for where it is. We still need to do one ice testing, ideally, which I think we're hoping to do this year out in Oberhof in Germany. Uh, okay. This is the thing with the sport. There's, there's nothing nearby for us to test. Uh, Elliot's quite lucky now. That the facility they've got in Lake Placid is, is sort of second to none. Uh, I was yeah. fortunate to, to go out there and train uh, the other year there. And yeah, to have that on your doorstep, you can see why the the USA push set up and the push times in the in the World Cup are coming down. They're, they're pushing sometimes top three, top five, which is amazing, amazing to see. So mm. uh, it's about having the athletes and uh, and the time and the, as much facilities on pushing as you can. You know, so that's what the difference is. Yeah. Then, so that first competition that you've done um, as a obviously a bobsled athlete. How nervous were you going into that? Because it's something you've never like when you play football and you know you get to your first, say your first final, it's nervous. But you you played football yeah, your yeah. entire life, whereas like you've been in the sport for a couple of years. Like how daunting is that? Uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty scary or pretty pretty uh, nervous at, at the time. Uh, but I like to try and fall back on on everything that I've learned in the military side of stuff. Is that you know, I've been training for this for so long and you, you've got to just trust yourself and your own ability that you're capable of doing what you, you're trying to do. So uh, always got those layers on the on the line, but you take that deep breath. Once I'm in that sled, relax and, and try and do my best. Uh, it, it's always, yeah, that, that first one, you know, I'm racing for the Air Force against the Army and the Navy. That was my first sort of real competition uh, in the sport. Uh, and I'd, I'd been given the opportunity to use a newer sled so you know the expectations are that you're going to do well uh and i think i came in within the top four top five and at that time you're race we're racing against the olympic bronze medalist in john jackson i think uh you had uh who else was racing 
uh, Lamentine, who's a GB pilot. So within the military setup, you've got these these athletes that, that have done the ultimate. You know, they, they've done as much as they can. So uh, you you definitely feel the pressure there. Uh, but it's a learning experience as well that, that first one. And uh, something I'm still learning now is to try and ways to improve that race day potential. Uh, I've got a situation sometimes where through training, I'm really right up there, like near the top and then it sort of starts to fade away a little bit it's fun in that peak in the training and how many runs as well because uh, i guess the the drain mentally on you having to concentrate for that that amount of time such specifically can can take its drain and and draw on you so how important is the raf to sports like this which don't have a lot of funding uh, it's it's almost the grassroots for for bobsleigh or skeleton or luge within the UK. These are all winter sports that you you wouldn't ever ever be able to do without those, that capacity. So the, the I think the military has been doing the sport and been involved in it maybe since the late sixties, seventies, and they've built up equipment, uh, support and that sort of stuff. Uh, it it's almost essential unless you've got the money in the world or UK sport are fully funded in programs. Uh, there's there's no way in really like um w- with the way the the british setup is is going towards now that they're, they're looking to get towards how the skeleton has been over the last sort of two decades where they're getting talent through and holding these events we've actually got a push championships uh, happening next month uh, which is a, a prize winning opportunity for people to come down and try and, and see where they where they rate um but for the military, it, it is the background. It, it, it's almost the, the grassroots to, to get into the sports for, for so many people because of the expensiveness and, uh, and the cost of everything. How do you balance work and also training and going on these training camps? Obviously, yeah. the RAF allow it, but how do you go about that? Yes, yeah, it's, it's tough. So during, like, I'm working, say, uh, eight, eight to five every day, uh, I'm also training in, in the evening or over lunchtime if I if I, I've got capacity. Uh, I've moved I've recently moved role from working on the E3D Sentry, which is a big AWACS uh, system that's now retired, uh, to to an instructional role, so a more day day to day role instead of the shift work sort of stuff. Uh, so I'm hoping moving forward I've got a bit more capacity for that. But uh, I'm fortunate that the military supports me and. Uh, for my on-season stuff, I've got an entitlement as a high-performance athlete uh, for 65, like 10 to 12 weeks extra leave that I can use, which wow. fulfills that. But it only comes down to workplace requirements and that you know work are able to sustain that because that's a long period of time to be away, not doing your primary role. It's not just going to affect me; it's going to affect the other people within uh, within the, the unit and stuff. So it's understanding mm. that. Uh, but alongside the training, I'm also trying to raise sponsorship and funding and, and build relationships with companies to find ways to, to get us on ice. Because a lot of the battle starts before we even get, get away over the summer months to try and find the money to get away. And yeah, it is it is a tall order. And I think the the experience I've got uh, as a supervisor, as an engineering manager, to, to compartmentalise and... Uh, the capacity to work out things and, and get things done in, in certain sections. So uh, it's important that I train and uh, find the money and everything. So, yeah, it's tough. It really is tough. Uh, ideally, I'd, I'd love to be able to be a, 
a full-time athlete, which is an option in the military, but there's only so many spots. And uh, for me, I need to be on the World Cup getting top 15 results. So that's the initial goal moving forward over the next couple of years to get that, that position. Then I've got a good case to, to work on that. So, With being a full-time athlete in the military, what does that actually entail? Does that mean you kind of take a part-time role in what you're doing as your full-time job now and sort of push towards the full-time athlete? Or do you fully just leave that role behind and carry on as a full-time athlete? So what will happen is you're... Uh, no longer go to work, you'll live at home or wherever you want to live. Uh, and then you'll get paid to just, just train, run your programs. You don't have any uh, need to go to work or be involved with work for a, a set period of time. So uh, one of the guys, the Jamaican squad, uh, Shan Wayne Stevens, he was signed off for, for four years for the Olympic period, uh, just for uh, to, to train, obviously taking his military wage. Uh, but the, the military looks at it as... What, what they gain from it in, uh, in not marketing, but, you know, uh, in the media, the communication, uh, that sort of side is about uh, employing a positive role model with it, within the RAF and sports. So you take on a lot of stuff uh, with it. So I've actually got a attendance at an air show locally in a couple of weeks where I'll run a stand with the Bob, say, all that sort of stuff to help promote the Air Force and sport. And it, it's a recruitment tool uh, as well, I believe. So. Yeah, uh, that's, that's the dream to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah, and have a wage. It's it's similar as if you're a UK sport funded athlete, you're you're taking yeah. a wage from the UK sport. It, it's a similar sort of situation, I guess. Uh, but if you're military and then you're on UK sport funded, you, you receive both. So uh, yeah, it can yeah. work out quite elusive if if you're good enough. So you run obviously your own kind of team, don't you, Team Stanbridge? So what goes into that in terms of trying to get funding? Like where, how do you even start trying to find funding for something like that? Yeah, so uh, you, you almost as a, a pilot, your name's on the sled uh, because there is no funding for us at our level, on the European Cup level. Uh, it falls to almost the pilot to try and source that money. You're the main driving force behind it. Um, and you've got to support the athletes that are with you. So ideally, we're trying to raise enough money that, myself and the other athletes don't have to contribute so that's accommodation food uh, all the track fees race fees coaching fees you know uh, we're, we're traveling each season probably 13,000 miles uh, to go to Lillehammer and back uh, for for a couple of weeks uh, you're talking like 3,000 miles to get there and back just just for one trip uh, so how, how I started it was with LinkedIn is probably the biggest network to get involved in uh, and you're trying to get the right people in the right companies to uh, to connect to. Uh, but you've obviously got to find something that you need to offer them that's of value. So for us, there's marking opportunities on, on our equipment, uh, the van, uh, our clothing, that sort of stuff. But something that Bob say has and can do really well is the unique experiences. The amount of people that have been in a Bob say or been to a push track or something like that is so small because it's such an elusive sport, offering that opportunity to a company in the right way and seeing that the performance side of stuff is, is is a massive draw. But for me being in the military, I'm quite lucky that the military is supported by civilian companies within defence, within the defence sector. So I'll try and negotiate and work towards those companies first to try and find a window. But we've had uh, a, an electrical company on board, uh, 
we've had a logistics company, non-military related sort of stuff uh, over the past few years. We've had TLM Nexus, which is a defense sector based, um, GTAP make computers. Yeah, it's, it's trying to get them on board and see the value in what high performance is and being military as an athlete can do for their business or or the Q&A sessions that we have to try and inspire and obviously the situation that I've had over the last six months is is obviously adds to that to, to a point so yeah it, it's trying to find what you need what you can get from them and what you can offer as well because adding value and building relationships are more important I think for long-term longevity in the sport because without yeah. without the funding it just wouldn't be possible for a one-week training camp, let's say, in Austria, you're taking, yeah. I don't know, eight athletes on this training camp. How much money do you need to fund that trip? Yeah, so uh, eight, eight's pretty high. So with probably that's probably about two teams worth of a running former. Uh, so yeah. you're going to need a van, uh, which you can either rent. Say you rent a van for uh, a week. It's going to cost you five, 600 quid. Uh, the fuel to get there, two, 300 quid. Uh, a run on ice is roughly about 50 to 60 euros so you'll make, get 15 in over the week so that's 8 900 euros um, you've then got your van insurance uh, your personal insurance to cover uh, a sled if you haven't got one you need to rent or, or purchase rent of a sled could be like maybe a thousand a week 800 a week depending on the, the level of it uh, you need runners as well uh, which to buy a set of runners could be five to ten grand. Sleds sort of Jesus. to buy is forty to sixty grand. Uh, and then what else are we talking about? Accommodation. You're trying to accommodate eight people in the same place, and we don't stay in hotels. We can't afford hotels or luxury uh, performance centres or anything like that. So we're looking at Booking.com, Airbnb, uh, that sort of stuff. So for eight people, you maybe for a week looking two grand possibly. So you're talking for that one week training, you're, you're almost in for sort of five five grand easily just for one week without your coaching fee, which for a week's maybe 800 quid. So yeah, five, wow. six grand to, to get away for a week. So That's really, incredible, isn't it? Because we work closely together with the other European Cup teams in GB, so the likes of Adam Bird and Nick Gleeson, we can, we can split those initial costs of coaching down, accommodation a little bit, travel you can share a little bit and stuff like that so it's trying to find ways to be as frugal as possible uh, and understanding that sometimes at our level we can't we're doing the hard work the real hard graft to, to get away it's only when you're at the elite level that the funding comes through and things become easier you know you, you're always working for that sort of carrot and stick sort of situation or, or chasing that egg so yeah it, it's a massive how important is social media now to your ability to obviously gain funding? It's a massive aspect that you've uh, got to be able to engage with followers or, or people to, you can use it as a marketing tool to, to go to companies and say that this is our, our outreach or exposure over a certain period. Uh, because that's what a lot of people work with now as, as a, a common tool. So um, the same with myself going to air shows or, or venues and, have an outreach there to an event that has 200,000 people attending is something that you can push to say, this is the level of exposure you, you can expect for supporting a company that, or a team that 
maybe does Bob say, but they do these other things to help and, and engage with. So, yeah, it's a, it's a massive thing to try and find that marketing. Uh, and most of the time you find the companies aren't doing it for marketing or financial gain or anything like that. It's, it's because they, they want to be involved with something that's positive, that's something that they want to get behind and that they can feel that they can really make a difference. Um, we had an insurance company on, come on board last year and they weren't really bothered about what, what they get out of it. it. It was more, you know, if I could, I've got this money, if I give it to someone else, that it will, I can't see the value or they, they can't see the game, but seeing that you're competing and you go away, we can see your results as something tangible to what you're doing. That, that That's the biggest thing, I believe. So, yeah, it's, it's important. Yeah, that's incredible. That's from, you know, we, we need companies like that in the world that are willing to just invest in something for the sake of what it is rather than whatever they can gain from it. Because otherwise, like, you know, your sports like bobsled, sports like skeleton, and yeah. a lot of the winter sports actually couldn't exist really because no, like the the price of the you know like you said 40 to 60 grand for a sled for the runners five to ten grand it's ri- ridiculous to try and be able to afford that on you know just a normal a normal wage yeah yeah um and and i don't know that that, that amount of money uh, <laughs> far from so. <laughs> uh, so uh yeah yeah it, it is a massive thing and luckily like the first couple of years i was able to fall back on on the military and use military equipment to to push me through and, and get that experience that that to get me from a novice driver to intermediate and now the, the level i'm at, at, at currently so uh you know you talk about bob says a sport and, and performance and, and results that sort of stuff uh, the likes of brad hall now who's who became the European champions this year, second at the World Championships. He's been driving as a pilot for just over 10 years now. So that's the level of experience that really comes through to to be as good as you can be in the sport and to beat the Germans at that level. It's amazing to see that, you know, for, for a country without these facilities to be able to perform at that level, you know, detriment to everything that we're trying to achieve. So Yeah. I want to get on to you're probably the biggest setback of your career yeah. so far because it's such an interesting story. So just describe to us the, the turn of events that happened that day. Uh, yeah, so last season we are in the European Cup circuit. Uh, we're out in Altenburg racing at possibly, it's known as possibly the hardest track uh, in the world. It was built uh, during the Soviet era where we still had East Germany, West Germany, uh, and the idea behind the track was to build a track that had all the difficult most parts of each track in the world at the time. I think that was a, the belief behind it. Um, uh, so it is a really tricky one and understanding it. Uh, I first raced there uh, or trained there sort of two, three years ago. Uh, and, you know, 70% of the time you're, you're okay, but there's always one part of the track any in any corner on the track you could make a mistake and crash this the risk is quite high um so is that we're actually gone through training the whole week has been flying been really good uh really enjoying the track uh, uh and we get into the race day uh starting i think we're quite far off uh we've sliding if you're starting off first you've got more opportunities to to get that track quicker and, and the ice is less damaged so 
but we were sort of 15th, 16th off uh, on the day. There'd been a couple of crashes before us as well. So throughout that day, uh, one of the Swiss had crashed, another GB athlete crashed. Uh, so, you know, that, that builds to your nerves and your tension and that sort of stuff. But I was confident with, with what we were going to do. Uh, after sort of, we start off, good load, good good start. Fourth, fifth corner down, I make a slight mistake, uh, which pushes too far along the corner. I then pull pull off the, the set off the corner and we hit into a short wall. So we've not quite made the on-take. We've come onto the corner too early and which has disturbed the sled for it to, to sort of roll. And it's rolled inwards. So uh, when you crash, you're usually fine. It's not, not a big issue. You hold on, you get yourself tucked in away. And being in the pilot, you're, you're tucked away by the cowling. So you're, you're at least least wear compared to the guy behind that takes the brunt of it. The sled sort of weights on the back of his shoulders, that sort of stuff. But in this situation, unfortunately, um, I got pinned by the guy behind. So it, it meant my head got stuck between the sled and the ice. So uh, I couldn't draw myself in. Um, the brakeman was on my back and we're going probably about 40, 50 miles an hour at this point. A few corners further down, there's a uh, entry corner. So where tracks come in, sleds come into the track and I can see myself coming towards it, trying to pull myself in. Uh, I can't quite get in far enough and make contact like my head is right over and we make contact straight on top and I hear a, a crack or a pop. I'm yelling back to the guy behind to say move back but in this instance he, he can't hear a thing. He's in flight or flight mode. You sometimes go in uh, in that sort of scenario where you're just holding on for dear life and you know you self-preservation that sort of thing. Uh, so we're dragged along the rest of the track which is roughly an, another eight eight hundred thousand meters down. Uh, a minute, a minute and a half goes goes through. I, I still can't pull myself in. Uh, we pendulum to the finish. Uh, I sort of lay back out the sled. It took me sort of 10, 15 seconds to be like, okay, I need to get up now. So, just took a moment because it was the the experience was sort of like a, a dull ache is the best way to describe the the pain. Uh, I step out the sled, out the track, and then I speak to the doctor. I was like, look, my neck doesn't feel right. Um, straight away they load me onto a spinal board put me in the back of a, a Land Rover to the medical center. Uh, I get assessed by them. They start giving me a bit of medication. Uh, I've got the uh, the stiff neck collar on and everything to stop me from moving. Within half an hour, the whole race gets uh, put on standby. Within half an hour, I'm loaded into a uh, helicopter and flown to Dresden Airport, uh, Dres Dresden Hospital. I keep doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Dresden, Dresden Hospital, uh, which uh, I then get taken out of the, the helicopter, put through a CT scanner, MRI. They start cutting away your clothing. So at that time, I was like, "This is, you know, this has got to be something serious if they're doing all this." Uh, but what I did make sure was that they didn't cut through my race suit, which uh, a GB race suit are really hard to find, and you know, the, the underarms at the time were, were amazing. So I managed to get them to peel that off me before cutting through anything um uh go for the scan and yeah that's it you know you've got to protect the <laughs> protect the kit <laughs> yeah uh but after the crash I, I made sure the brakeman was okay he was he was obviously a bit worried checking on me uh, and that sort of stuff and uh, i made sure to have like my essentials my passport my phone my health insurance card with me to to take to the, the hospital um so throughout all, all, all this experience so far um I'm fully aware of what's going on. I've not blacked out. Uh, I'm, 
I've got full feeling in all my limbs and, and that sort of stuff. So it's just like a, a dull ache across the top of my neck and my shoulders. That, you know, and I didn't, as soon as I did something, I was like, I'm not going to turn my neck because it's not worth risking what could be or couldn't be. So, uh, hmm. instead of a couple of hours, I'm, I'm laying in the hospital that, uh, like the senior surgeon, he says, we're going to operate on you sort of tomorrow. Uh, I managed to take a picture, send it to my parents to let them know that I'm okay. The first they hear about it is just a picture of me in a, a spinal collar. <laughs> I'm smiling at them. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think I broke something. Literally <laughs> uh, so given were, the worst case it. scenario. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they were a little worried, but I managed to WhatsApp call them. I was like, look, I'm okay. Um, I've got to have an operation. We'll know more when, when, once, uh, once I see the surgeon. So... It explains the the situation and the risks and you know the risk with an operation where it's called an anterior cervical disectomy infusion so they're going into your, your spine taking away the discs cutting away and uh, trying to create the space again uh, to stop any sort of uh, impingements on your nerves and, and stuff around your spinal column and that. Um, so i got diagnosed that what had actually happened was i fractured the c5 vertebrae right down the middle you know, axial load, and then I'd ruptured two discs. So I think it was C4556, um, which had meant that those are compressed with the, the force uh, and the, the fracture. So I think I read somewhere, like, to break uh, one of your vertebrae, you need, like, two and a half, three tons of force to be applied for that, for that to happen. So the incident itself, you know, is, uh, to put it into that sort of perspective, that's like a car crash or getting Jesus. a car hitting your head on sort of thing. So... Um, yeah, yeah. Taking that in, you know, you, you realise how lucky you are in, in, in a certain situation. Yeah. And, but understanding like the frequency of that occurrence and the, the, the nature of it, like I've had, I've I've been crushed in the back maybe twenty times, and, mm. and just had, the most I had I think once was concussion in the front. I've I've crushed maybe six or seven times, and every time you, you're generally okay, right? So it's understanding the frequency and the incident. Obviously, you, you can think of, of the worst in the future as being what if, what if that, what if that. Yeah. yeah. You, you end up then being so risk averse that you'll never never do your other stuff or, or, or anything like that. So um, after the operation, I was in the ICU for 24 hours, I think it was. So that was me all uh, dripped up with everything. Uh, they uh, put you on, uh, what's it called? Uh, they, they stick that thing in you so you, you, you wee through a machine and, and oh, yeah. all that sort of stuff uh, and bits. And then I had the operation wound here. They had a, like a, a fluid drain in there to, to make sure that that got drained away and that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, within 24 hours, I then got the hospital to phone my parents to let them know, my coach uh, and that, because it was, we're halfway through a season here and I'm responsible not just for myself, but I've got, four or five other guys that are competing with me uh, yeah. that I've sorted out the accommodation they're, uh, they're sort of they're pay, helping them pay their way to, to be able to compete with us on, on season so uh, and I've got vehicles equipment that are out in Germany that need to get back to the UK so uh, so after that first day or two liaise with them to try and sort of get a plan together to get everything back to the UK and the guys were great for doing that you know uh, yeah. I think one of them drove all the way from Altenburg in Germany back to the UK in one, one non-stop like 
15, 16 hours. Like, so, Bloody hell. Uh, to, and, then, and then flew back out to, to for the rest of the squad. Because after that race, there was another race in Eagles in Austria that we had to go to that was on the, the schedule. So it was like, they didn't have time to, to sit around and, uh, and wait for me. Well, yeah. they'd be waiting a bit, a bit a bit longer than we thought. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but sort of post the operation, within 48 hours, the physio came around to assess me. Uh, the pain I'm in is probably just like a bit of stiffness, soreness around the neck, around the wound, and uh, what else did I have? It was difficult to swallow because the way the operation works is they go through the front of your front of your neck, push your esophagus out of the way, like your uh, your um, where all your food goes, it gets pushed out of the way, and they're getting access through there. So well, they've disrupted the muscles and stuff like that. It made mm. it difficult to swallow, so I was on sort of. Uh, like baby food for a, for a couple of days until I started complaining and asking for like <laughs> half a chicken and stuff. I'm trying to do that in German, not knowing how to, how to do it. Like my German's not great. It's uh, not happening. I was, yeah, they started to get irritated with me. Like, where's the chicken? <laughs> I need I need a decent I need a decent meal here. Like, so uh, yeah, that sort of stuff. But with it, the physio came around to assess. They obviously checking that you've got. Uh, sensation feeling in, in parts of your body and then she was like do you want to go for a walk or stand up I was like yeah can we go for a walk so within that first 48 hours I was up and down walking up at stairs and, and stuff so for the operation that I've had and the circumstance it could have been completely different it could, could have been you know I could be in a situation where I, I might not feel my left arm or uh, lose a sensation in the leg or uh, the, the height of, of, of the fracture at C5 anything above or below that you you lose breathing function you can lose um you know ability to walk and, and stuff so uh, so lucky yeah 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 definitely lucky and i think there's got to be an aspect where physically the training and strength in, in my neck or my traps or upper body are sort of protecting me somehow in, in the, i think if you're you hear of people that have a, a car crash and suffer whiplash injuries or, or, or something like that. It could be, uh, they could be in a worse position, I think, uh, and stuff like that. So, mm. yeah, it's understanding the nature of it and and uh, seeing what I can do moving forward. Really, that that was the desire from from that once the accident happened. I was like, well, I can't change what's happened, but I know what I can do to to get better, and that's been the focus. Sort of so, thing, so, how hard was it? to obviously dial everything back and start again really because you know like you said to me before this you yeah. were back lifting weights within two weeks which is incredible after a surgery like that but also there was i can imagine from speaking to you there's probably an aspect in your brain that's like oh i could probably do more than this but you have to hold yourself <laughs> yeah, back all the time that, that that's sort of the biggest thing this first week so uh the first week I was fortunate that the, the doctor said I didn't have to wear the soft collar in bed or anything like that. So majority of the time I, I weren't wearing it unless I wanted to get up and walk around. So it took me a week to get back to the UK to arrange the insurance and flights and that sort of stuff. And I spent uh, the next four weeks with my parents at home. They set me up like a hospital bed in the living room, which isn't ideal, but uh, it's, it's the best we could do at the time. But uh, getting back to sort of training. So I, we looked at sort of ways to train that didn't involve lifting weight as such. So uh, I spoke to Ben and we went down the, the BFR training and occlusion training. So for my limbs, so I didn't want to lose the, the muscle. Yeah, didn't want to lose the muscle gain that I'd had. So we'd strap up and I'd do sort of 
pistol squats, standing squats, or uh, I got some sort of cables or whatever, you know, like the the bands sort of stuff to to keep the biceps, and the shoulders still moving, uh, and that over yeah. that, that sort of sort of four to six week period really until I saw the surgeon and they gave me the sign off to say that you can start training a bit now. So, uh, and then we went on to sort of more body weight, body weight stuff uh, for that first month or two. Uh, and it was after seeing the physio, sort of the three, two and a half, three month point that we started loading weights, with, but kept away from anything sort of back squat side of stuff for, for, for the spine side of stuff. But front squats, that sort of stuff we could, uh, using bad step-ups, working plyo sort of stuff was what was the best way to, to keep some sort of that speed and that power aspect as well. So. Hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely a change. Holding back is, is the hardest thing because you want to always push and the athlete in me wants to lift heavy, do do things, but it's understanding that if I do that, the risk, the damage isn't now, it's years to come. You know, you could end up having to have that operation again because the likelihood you've degraded the, the levels higher or lower more than they should have. So. so what did they do during the surgery? Was it... Have you got like plates in your neck? Have you got artificial yeah, discs? Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, they make that they, that incision. They cut through. They cut away a bit of the bone. They take the discs out uh, and they screw. Uh, I've got six screws across three vertebrae screwed in, so they could create the space to put an artificial disc, two discs in, uh, and then that that metal is going to be in there for forever now. So they won't ever disturb that again. So. Uh, yeah, that's uh, the idea of the oper- operation. They cut away the disc and take it out uh, and stuff to create the space to. Because what you find is w- with compression, it will push the bulge the disc out, and that may put pressure on the the nerves at the back end that then affects your your body feeling or could uh, impinge it. That there's no feeling going through at all. So uh, yeah, the only sort of issue i it's not really an issue is like i get a slight tingling occasionally down my little pinky uh little little finger uh, and that's it so uh, i can't really com- c- complain uh, have you got be full able to range get... of motion again in the neck oh uh I, that's something i'll never never get back so 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 at the moment i've got squad here up yeah. and then it's the left right you know that's probably it things loosen off a yeah. little bit it's the the actual motion this way so like shin to doesn't quite happen anymore because you, you've, you've obviously fused these two together with screws and eventually yeah. the bone will then grow across that and that will become one, one solid vertebrae almost or one solid uh, bit of bone. So, um, yeah, I'll never gain that back. But what I do find is that by training uh, certain exercises or shoulder exercises that my muscles relax a little bit more and I find a bit more freedom in that range or that ability to, to use that range uh, mm. easier. So stuff so how long until you'll be back in the sled uh so i'm hoping in the, ready for when the season starts in november it, it is and that will push us just to sort of 11 months i think so uh, i see the surgeon in a few weeks time uh which is a seven month part six seven months um and it's sort of nine months um I, i'm quite fortunate being in the military that they've got special rehab centers special uh, support <coughs> for what they built up for like the wounded soldiers and, and stuff like that from the, the conflicts that they had there is support there for these networks to to look at you and, and find ways to to get you back to 
to normal daily life sort of stuff. So uh, attending the, the rehab centre there, I spoke to one of the colonels and he, he explained to me like the situation I'm in and at that point, which was sort of, I think it was three and a half months and I'm in the same position now as I was, was then, that he'd expect a full recovery back to work life, back to sport life, uh, because he's dealt with rugby players uh, that have gone back to competitive rugby within nine months. And you're talking nine months where they're having compression injuries is such a, a likelihood of that happening. They'll go through like 15, 20, 30 tackles a game. And the, the chance of that compression, it's happening every every moment they do. Whereas like for myself, like the risk is so much lower. Uh, but that bone diffuse can take nine, nine months to a year, really. So if I'm in the nine month, 10 month, 11 month point, uh, it will come down to the surgeon to sign off. But yeah, I think we should be back in the sled um, later this year, ready for the European Cup season. Are you excited to get back in or are you slightly nervous in just in case like if if you fall on your head again, there's a potential that yeah. the same thing happens? Uh, excited, I think, really. Like, uh, like I've, I've worked so hard to, to train and, and do everything to, to compete in this sport. And I, I, I'm not finished yet, so... Uh, I think maybe when I get there and I'm in the sled that a bit of nerves might kick in but then we're not going to go to a track I don't know we're not going to go to a place you, with with the sport you always build up steadily each year so your first week on ice is ever so gentle you're not you're not trying to roast off race times on, on the first day so uh, yeah for me I think yeah, it's going to be a bit of both really like, you're always going to have that apprehension and stuff like that but yeah, I'll probably, the guy that was behind me before, I'll probably let him slide a bit later <laughs> uh, just to make sure, like, yeah, have a bit, uh, yeah. It, it is going to be tough, I think. Uh, there's a mental aspect to stuff that you, you don't always think about and it doesn't come to you until you, you're in that situation. Uh, and that. But I think the, I always fall back on the training and the situations that I've dealt with in life, dealing with stressful situations and stuff that puts you outside that comfort zone that, you know, I, I, I sort of almost thrive in that situation to, to overcome stuff. So yeah, yeah, really, really excited to be able to, to get back to it. And what a story it's going to be to, 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 to be get able to back. So, yeah. Yeah. So the goal is obviously 2026 Olympics and yeah. obviously that's the, that's the pinnacle. It's the pinnacle of any winter sport, any athletic sport, really. So for you, what are you doing that's going to put you ahead of the rest of the crowd that are going to be at the Olympic trials attempted to get there themselves? Uh, yeah, it's it's difficult uh, for that. So it, it, it's going to be a, a schedule of time. So we can't, that's the ultimate goal, but we've got to fracture this down into smaller, smaller aspects. So uh, this upcoming season, we've got to look at the top six results, hopefully. And, and the way we're going to do that is it's finding funding first of all we then need to find make sure the athletes that we've got are, are there the equipment's up to standard and then it's just putting those all those little bits together and building that team team aspect to to get on ice and get these results because your results that you get each year can differ by the people that you're racing with the track you're at and, and everything so for me to there's not one thing it's trying to find all these little small margins that we need to improve obviously i've had a bit of setback personally physically but uh with how my lifting's coming through now i'm back to sort of power clean 120 kilos hand cleaning 110 sort of stuff and 
August last year, I went through the roof to power cleaning 140, hand cleaning 130, that, that, that sort of stuff. So physically, there's always stuff you can improve on and it's finding the time to, to make sure you can make those small improvements over each year. So top six this year would be ideal and a great way forward. Year after, we're talking getting a World Cup spot, getting to a World Championships, getting that top 15 that I need for elite full time because uh, I'm competing against people with the GB setup that already have that situation not because they've they've got those results but because their their work affords them like it's, it's strange how uh, if you're in the army or navy you've got a situation that you can get full-time a little bit sooner because of the, my role and my my job the skill set i've got is it's harder for them to let me step away but uh to get to 2026 it, it's going to take a lot of hard work a lot of graft and one thing is that i'm really good at is just just keep keep plodding on keep working hard keep 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 doing the best i can uh, and even if something drops up or steps in my way i'll find a way to overcome it i'll always make make that sacrifice to get get things done so mm. it's, it's yeah. incredible what you're doing you know like to have pushed through the injury get back into training be at probably by the sounds of it about 90 percent of where you were previously yeah, yeah. in less than a year like you know it, no, yeah. it probably probably the moment you've had the, the it's happened you're told you're going to need surgery and told what's actually happened to your neck i can imagine you were just sat there in the in the bed almost like kind of your career could be over at that point yeah everyone like uh you tell someone you've broken your neck and they always the, the that initial thought is is the worst you know you think well can he walk can he do this can he do that uh, and yeah, it, it it was a bit of a shock, and under, but understanding that things are repairable, like things, me knowing in my own personal state that I've got this feeling, I, I'm not in a, a worse situation. Yeah, it, it's finding a way back, and and because I know I haven't got, I'm not finished with what I'm trying to achieve here, and the goal is still still the same. It almost spurs you on to to carry on and uh, and prove not just. To other people but myself that you know i'm capable of, of doing what i set out to do you know um, yeah it's that inner belief that you've, you've always got to work with and stuff and uh finding finding a way forward you know you're always gonna have setbacks in life but what defines you as a person is how you you deal with those situations and how you adjust how you overcome uh, you can either crumble or, or or use it to your advantage to uh, as a motivation really so Hmm. what's the because obviously you're you're 33 if i'm right yeah so i'm i'm, I'm getting close to the, the tail end of uh like an athletic career really uh and stuff um you you see with the sport of obviously the athletes are generally a, a little bit older uh anyway because they come from previous sports and that side of stuff so you know 36 if, if i was to get to the, the olympics i'll be 36 we'll be an amazing opportunity, amazing send off, and uh, and and that that'll be the the end of it all for me. For for Bob Say, if there's coaching opportunities in the future, that's something I'd I'd maybe look at uh, and stuff. But yeah, be, being at this age, you know, I wish that five year, six year gap that I had in the relationship, maybe I stuck with it back then because I could be five, six years further along back where I am now, a few years back, you know, so. Obviously, without the neck injury, that, that wouldn't have been ideal. But <laughs> um, yeah, 
yeah, age obviously plays a factor with, with performance. And uh, I think that the aspect that I do have is where, like I said previously, I've not been training full time. I've not really absolutely destroyed my body to the complete edge yet until. So I've still got a lot of capacity, I think, to, to progress over the next year or two. Uh, so. I'm looking forward to seeing how you progress as well and what you can achieve because, you know, if you can get to the the 2026 Olympics, that was, that could be incredible for you. Um, but yeah, 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 definitely. I I want to ask you one more, only one more question, and it's one that I ask everyone, and that is, yeah. how would you like to be remembered? And for you, it's a bit more interesting actually because you have these two aspects of what you do. Like usually, people who I speak to the pretty you know one directional in terms of they they're a runner or they're an athlete whereas you've got these two massive careers so for you how would you like to be remembered and also part b to that would be which part of your life would you like to be remembered most for um oh, that is tough so sort of the the RAF side of the stuff uh, it, it's more like yeah that i I was good at my job, really. Like you always want to have that practicality that you know you you are always known as a, a good guy. I think I get on with a lot of people. Like I really rarely have any conflicts. So, uh, but for the athlete side of stuff, it's you're always measured by your performances, but sometimes that doesn't re- replicate what you are as a person. So, uh, just that, yeah. Uh, helping people or that that what i'm trying to achieve is not just about myself it's about the others that i'm around as well to try and help other people perform and be the best that they can be really that's been an important factor for me in the sport and if i can progress the sport itself to another level or a bit more exposure that that that's enough i think obviously amazing yeah, where can uh, where can people find you, and where can people support? Say, you know, Team Stanbridge bobsled team. Where can they support you? Where can they, you know, if if people were looking for ways to fund anything, how can they do that? Yeah, yeah. So uh, you can we've got Instagram Bob Team Stanbridge. Uh, I'm John Stanis three one eight as well on Instagram. That's across uh, Twitter. Uh, LinkedIn is a good factor if you search for. Uh, John Stanbridge. Uh, I've also got a website, uh, gbbobsley.co.uk. Uh, you could go on there uh, and ha- have a look at that. Uh, there'll be a, an email you can uh, contact us on through there. So uh, we're always looking for funding and opportunities for, for companies to support uh, as we progress and, and move forward. And it's great to be able to speak to yourself today as well, Ethan. So I really appreciate the opportunity. Appreciate that, mate. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. Huge thanks to John for coming on the podcast and discussing his career both as an athlete and as an engineer within the RAF. Really interesting insight into how it works and how the RAF are helping support athletes to build that professional career that they that they want to have. You know, within these winter sports, which don't get much recognition. Um, and I've had a lot of bobsled athletes on recently, so it's been great to hear from one who is within that program of how the military within the UK is helping fund them and also helping push them towards their goals of getting to the Olympics and things like that. If you want to find John and see what he gets up to online, you can find his Instagram in the link in the description and you can also find um, all the stuff to do with Team Stanbridge, his bobsled team, uh, link in the description as well. So go support him and also 
remember to like subscribe share the podcast and there'll be another episode coming out on monday at 3 p.m australian eastern standard time and 6 a.m greenwood mean time see you then